Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, since 1996, online at thepulp.net. This Pulp Event Podcast features a panel discussion on 1939, the golden year of astounding stories. Participating are Ed Hulls, editor of Blood and Thunder magazine, Dr. Garen Roberts, and Dr. Tom Krabacher. The talk was recorded on Friday, August 8, 2014, at Pulp Fest 2014 in Columbus, Ohio. Here is Ed. Yeah, first of all, I want to apologize for inflicting myself on you yet again. You're, I'm sure you're heartily sick of seeing me now, but um, I drew the short straw, so <coughs> that's why I'm back here. Uh, I don't think we need to do a big setup because we referred to Astounding several times already, not only this evening, but, but last night as well. But um, again, we're, we're concentrating now on 1939 and the beginning of, of the Golden Age. So in addition to Garen Roberts, who you've just seen, uh, making his Pulp Fest debut as panelist is Tom Krabaker, another educator. So I'm surrounded by the kind of guys whose classes I cut when I was in college. <laughs> and uh, Tom is going to join us and share his expertise. You know, we always do with our, our favorite students, though, Ed. What? Yeah, I'm sorry, your grade's going down. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would fail a guy like you just to have you again. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, you, you get the good guys, you don't want them to go. So. Yeah, you're going to have to repeat this panel. Yeah. <laughs> and just when I'd finished paying my college loans, too. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so uh, uh, here it is. So it's 1939. Astounding under the editorship of John Campbell is starting to take off. Now, uh, I, I briefly mentioned this before, but the point bears repeating that even though Alvar Rogers in his great book, the aforementioned A Requiem for Astounding, he very precisely pinpoints the beginning of, of what he calls the Golden Age as the July 1939 issue, which had the first story by A.E. Van Vaux, um, Black Destroyer, and I believe there was an installment of a Doc Smith serial, and there was a, a story by C.L. Moore, who was the wife of Henry Kuttner, and uh, at a certain point best known for her Weird Tales work, but making a, um, a very strong showing in this issue with a story called, I believe it's called Greater Than Glory. Does that sound right? It's a, it has an alliterative <laughs> title like that. But, but I personally, I, I disagree with Rogers. I, I agree with him on many things, but... I really think that the Golden Age didn't just happen. It wasn't a, a Big Bang kind of a thing. It had something that had started happening gradually as John Campbell took the book over from F. Orland Tremaine, who had edited it in the early years of Street and Smith's um, um, stewardship of Astounding. So I think that you can't, you, you can't overlook, especially a lot of the 1938 issues, Campbell, for example, published um, the first science fiction story L. Ron Hubbard wrote. Now, H Hubbard is a controversial character, and there are a lot of people that think he was the talentless hack, but he did make his debut in science fiction in the July 1938 issue of Astounding, and he certainly made an impression, and he continued to contribute. And he uh, had a, one of his best novels, I think one of his best novels, Final Blackout, was serialized in Astounding. So. Uh, also in 1938, Campbell, under his, his own pseudonym of Don A. Stewart, wrote the classic Who Goes There, which some of you may know better under its movie incarnations as The Thing, The Thing from Another World, 
which has now been filmed officially three times and ripped off several more times. Um, and 38 also saw, I believe, uh, L. Sprague de Camp's first science fiction story, Lester Del Rey's first science fiction story. So again, this was not a spontaneous event, the beginning, the dawn of the Golden Age. It was something that, that had been leading up. Um, so as we mentioned before, if you think about the authors that Campbell was introducing during 1939, during that great year, it's Robert A. Heinlein writing as himself and as Anson MacDonald. It's Van Vogt, it's um, Theodore Sturgeon, it's, um, who are the other ones? Who else am I missing? Well, Asimov came in. Asimov, Asimov had, had published one story in Amazing, but he, he came into Astounding in 19, I think that was his second sale as a professional fictioner. So you, you can see classic science fiction taking place, and you can see all of these men who would come to dominate the genre, literally, in, in years, uh, we're, we're all coming through in 1939. So, uh, of course, you have to think not only of the, of the words of the stories, but also of the images, many of which became iconic. And uh, some of the great cover art, Hubert Rogers, who had done a lot of covers for magazines as diverse as Adventure and uh, Argosy, he started uh, doing a lot of great covers. I think Tom can take us through some of the artwork and, and the importance that it played in the development of Astoundings. Um, I think that Astounding, in many ways, the image of Astounding, it can be defined by its artwork. That's obviously a glib generalization. But if you look at the various periods, I think uh, the Clayton period was probably dominated as much by Wesso as anybody else as an artist. Brown was pretty much the dominant, not the only by any means, but the dominant artist, I think, who set the tone for the Tremaine years. And then when you get to the Campbell years, and we start to see it in 1938 uh, and 1939, we start to see artists like uh, Rogers, whose iconic gray lensman cover in October 39 is probably uh, his classic cover, and Charles Schneeman uh, starting to make their presence as well. Uh, Schneeman's most famous cover is probably the April 1939 uh, cover, uh, astronomical painting of Saturn, seen from Iapetus, I think, one of Saturn's moons. Uh, and that certainly is impressive, but Schneeman, I think, captured Campbell's feel with his interior work, his line work, which was very clean, very scientific. It had a kind of technical engineering feel, almost like architectural drawings at times. Now, Schnee the Schneeman situation is interesting. Uh, Walker uh, gave his personal anecdote about uh, picking up women by telling them that the moment wants their eyes. I don't have anything that uh, close, but a few years ago, um, about five or six years ago now, one Sunday afternoon, I live out in the Sacramento area in California, one Sunday afternoon I was in the health club and had taken my shower and was just sort of hanging around watching sports on the TV or something. And another guy was doing the same and we got talking and as you do, I'm, I'm Tom, his name is Paul. What do you do? I explained I was chair of the geography department at the University of Cal California State University in Sacramento. He said that he was running the Geographic Information Systems Center at UC Davis. They're not too far apart. 
So we got talking about maybe we could do things together, and we traded business cards. I always take business cards to the health club. And, <laughs> and I looked at his card, and the name was Paul Schneeman. And I just said, off chance, uh, not expecting that, he said, are you any relation to the science fiction artist Charles Schneeman? And his eyes lit up and he said, oh yeah, that's my dad. Uh, and uh, they lived about, they've, he and his wife have now taken positions in the Baltimore area, but they lived about eight or 10 miles away, so he invited me over to his house, showed me a lot of the uh, science, uh, science fiction art that Schneeman did. He also did political cartooning later in his career, so there's some of those. But right there on the living room wall over the couch was that Saturn painting from the 1939 Astounding. And it, it just blew me away. I mean, it, it's just incredibly impressive. It's just someone's living room decoration, that daddy painting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. So, so how, do you, how do you feel about his, his overall impact on the magazine as opposed to some of the other artists? I, I think that... Uh, Rogers and Schneeman were the best. I think that Timmons is underrated by some. People say that his palette is a little flat, that the line work is a little muddied, but uh, I think that he certainly comes in probably as my third favorite from it. And Ed Cartier also showed up in uh, Astounding occasionally, although I think He's more logically discussed in connection with unknown. Which we'll be doing tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So let's move from the art to the writers. Garen, what are, give us some notes on some of your favorite writers from Astounding during this golden age period. There are, are wonderful writers from that period and, and some who seem to define science fiction. Uh, Campbell himself, of course, was uh, quite a writer, uh, even prior to his editorship. Um, astounding. He had worked for Gernsback and had had stories published in Amazing Stories and, and similar Gernsback publications and of course that's an all a, one, all a great wonderful history. Gernsback, although like Campbell would learn the same lesson that Gernsback uh, had learned years earlier, Gernsback had wanted his authors to, uh, to base their stories in some scientific reality. He at least started out that way. And the whole Gernsback story is the source of some wonderful books and Mike Ashley's book and, and, and great, great material. But uh, he soon found out that there was a market for more fantastic fiction and that he couldn't just keep the Dr. Kellers and S.P. Meeks and the military scientists and, and that kind of thing um, writing his stories that he had too much other material, and so he branched into other, other uh, magazines, as Campbell would do as we talk tomorrow night about Unknown. Um, so Campbell had some of that foresight, or, or, or backsight, I guess, of, of thinking about what had worked and not worked for Gernsback, and I think that's, that's a very, very interesting kind of situation. Now, in terms of that July 39 issue, it was considered uh, such an important issue that uh, a couple decades back, uh, Southern Illinois University Press republished that particular edition facsimile. Yes, I saw you had that in the back. It's, it's a fine, fun edition facsimile with lots of neat things. Uh, the Black Destroyer depicted on the cover. The, and um, 
that's neat. At the same time, talking about connections, there was a very famous um, uh, science fiction artist, mostly known for his paperback work, early paperback work, by the name of Richard Powers, right? Well, Richard Powers had a son named Richard Gid Powers, who has come to PulpCon on a few occasions. And Gid Powers, who I know, um, wrote one of the great books, this is totally off the topic, on tangent, for Southern Illinois University Press called G-Men, Hoover's FBI in Popular Culture. If you ever find that book, it is a dandy. Anyway, so Southern Illinois thought highly enough of the July 39th issue, they reprinted it as, as it was. So many good authors, um, Heinlein, Van Vogt, and we won't get into the controversy of, uh, I come down in the middle of it a little bit in regard to L. Ron Hubbard. I think he was, you've heard me before, very prolific and very average. I don't think he was horrible, I don't think he was great, he was prolific. That's my a very ornery opinion on the situation. His right-hand man in Dianetics I have a harder time with because I like his writing a lot more, but I still don't like Scientology and Dianetics. For God's sakes, it was a made-up religion over a bar bet, right? We know this history, right? Well, that was the Canadian Van Vogt, and I love Van Vogt's work uh, tremendously from that period, and he was just very, very good. Uh, this is a good period for Isaac Asimov as well, before Asimov's electric ego took over, and he decided to write definitive books on Shakespeare and the Bible, and you know, he was the expert on everything. He turned me off something terrible in later years, but his early stuff, Asimov's early stuff, the foundation stuff and all of that is, is beautiful work. Um, Catherine Moore had to use her initials. We know Catherine Lucille Moore, C.L. Moore, because it was an unfortunate fact, uh, a misguided fact, but it was a publishing fact that women did not sell as well as men in the pulps. And so you had Emmy Councilman, Mary Elizabeth Councilman, you had Andre Norton writing under um, gender neutral names, uh, pseudonyms, Andy North, stuff like that. Catherine Moore was an absolute prize. Uh, she and her husband uh, worked back and forth on different projects. They, they contributed to the magazine. And uh, then, of course, there was Campbell himself, and he would write under a pseudonym, Don Stewart, as well. So there were, per issue, right about 39 there, and then Ed's talking about 37 to 43 or so in that era, there weren't many clinkers in those issues. Every story was very, very good. And they're, they're just, they're fairly affordable to this day. So get them if you can. They're pretty cool. If, let, I, I'll add one point that uh, 39, we're talking a lot about the new writers, the writers who, who made their first or earliest appearances in those issues. And yet the, there were still throwbacks to the golden age. And, uh, the October 39 issue, which Tom referred to earlier, that's the one with that iconic um, uh, Hubert Rogers cover with uh, uh, the lensman, Kim Kennison, the, uh, was standing with arms akimbo like Superman. Well, that, that gray lensman, that was the first installment, was printed in that issue. And that was Doc Smith, of course, who harkened back to an earlier era. It was part of Campbell's genius that he bridged the, those periods, the very early uh, periods of the Gernsback, you know, uh, with all the sense of wonder that that implied. And, but Campbell's genius was insisting that the stories have not only a degree of scientific plausibility, but also 
that they had real narrative, that the story wasn't just a catalog of scientific principles or theories, that the story had to have recognizably human protagonists and supporting characters, and that they'd be placed in certain conflicts that evoked emotional reactions, you know, that were believable. So against this phenomenal backdrop of intergalactic travel. Well, Doc Smith didn't quite catch on to that. He didn't get that memo right away. But Gray Lensman, nonetheless, I personally, that's my favorite of the Lensman novels. We can attach significance or not to the fact that it appeared in that glorious 1939 year, but it certainly is, is another story that uh, everybody who's interested in science fiction should read. To some people, Doc Smith doesn't hold up nearly as well uh, as he does to others, but uh, it's definitely something to look out for. So again, if, if the takeaway from this short panel is that Campbell's genius in introducing these new writers was to, to get them involved in, in his new version, his evolving vision of science fiction, and he was a master at getting each one to, to write the kinds of stories for which they showed a particular aptitude. Now, I, I could go on forever about what that meant, but there were certain people who were better suited. Some were better suited to hard science, and they had very specific visions of what a future society might look like technologically, and the problems that might arise from the application of technological principles. There are other writers who weren't that, that great at hard science, but they had an instinct for uh, putting humans in, in um, alien uh, situations, in alien environments, and having to cope with uh, problems. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is he would get one kind of story from Heinlein that's not necessarily the same kind of story he'd get from Theodore Sturgeon, you know? And it was when Campbell realized that some of these guys could write stories that they were really good at that didn't necessarily belong in Astounding, that's when he talked Street and Smith into letting him start Unknown, where uh, the pages of Unknown are filled with a lot of these same writers that he brought along during Astounding's Golden Age. And we'll talk about that more tomorrow, because really, if you're interested in pulp fiction, fantastic fiction, speculative fiction, and I'm, I think Tom and, and Garen would agree with me, you can't get better magazines and astounding in its peak period and unknown. So um, if you guys have final thoughts, otherwise we'll wrap it up. And Tom, you want to say something? Yeah, uh, I want to comment on one thing that uh, I should have mentioned when discussing the art, but I think in a way it's reflective of Campbell's influence, and that's the cover art on Astounding during the first few years of his editorship Unlike almost all the other science fiction magazines which stretch, stress the sensational, Campbell went in the opposite direction. His covers were often dramatic, but that kind of cheap sensationalism, and I say cheap not derogatorily, it appeals to me, but that type of sensationalism that a lot of other magazines had wasn't there that often in the Campbell covers. And he was going for a more intellectual, more sophisticated uh, uh, image of science fiction. And I think the, uh, I got to check the date, the April 1942 issue of Astounding, which is the cover for Beyond This Horizon, where you have the spaceship landing in the grove of giant redwood trees, uh, a very pastoral setting, but at the same time, it's, 
perfect, I think, for, uh, for conveying the kind of attitude Campbell had towards science fiction. Uh, I don't know that that's the only type of cover he had on the magazine. There certainly were dramatic ones, but it was a totally different uh, track that he took compared to most others. Final thought? The machine in the garden, the old railroad coming to the western frontier. Oh, the old Leo Marx book. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just one other uh, quick story. Maybe some of you have heard this. It's my favorite of all time Doc Smith stories. Doc Smith was a sort of a, a frail intellectual man. He was never a big muscular powerhouse or anything like that. He studied in the Ivy League schools. He was a chemist by trade. He was a very, very bright man and very, very kind man. During the Depression, a very famous donut chain, I don't know if you've ever heard this story, in Michigan, hired Doc Smith. They paid him at that time what was a lot of money. It was $5,000 to come up with a chemical formula for their donuts. And the chain isn't around anymore. It's been gone about 10 years, but it was called Dawn Donuts. And for so $5,000, he created a donut franchise with his chemistry. I always loved that story. <laughs> Thanks, so, so if only Rogers had painted the donut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Again, this is like, like so many of our panels today. We could go on and on and you know uh, bore you all to tears. But instead of that, we will leave you to the tender mercies of Buck Rogers, who will, whose adventures will continue as soon as we warm up the video projector and get that lined up. So thanks again for coming. I want to thank my very erudite panelists. And uh, you'll see Tom again tomorrow in the Unknown panel. And uh, enjoy what remains of the evening, and we'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.